This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. It gives me a great pleasure to introduce Professor Alec Cameron, Vice-Chancellor and President of uh, RMIT University. Alex had an illustrious career um, spanning both Australia and the UK. He's been educated in Australia and the UK. But Alec, I'd like to ask you to describe to us who you are and how you've got to be where you are. Oh, okay. Um, thanks, Judith. Um, well, I'm um, you know, an Australian uh, with uh, my initial disciplinary area is engineering. So I did an undergraduate um, uh, double degree at the University of Sydney in science, uh, majoring in pure maths and physics and in electrical engineering. Um, and that, um, well, that first-hand experience uh, in the Australian system then led to graduate studies um, in the UK. As you said, I, I did my next degree was my DPhil at Oxford University in the robotics research group. Um, and then I suppose my career uh, departed from academia, but not from research uh, in the first instance. I, my next appointment uh, on graduation from Oxford I took up a position as a postdoctoral researcher with Philips Electronics, so the, the, the Dutch um, uh, electronics company uh, in their New York uh, research organization um, and spent uh, time there as a, as a postdoctoral um, researcher and then as a senior member of research staff. Uh, then returned to Australia. Um, by now I was married with a child. Um, I'd been appointed to an advanced engineering centre, which was a, a federal government program um, where uh, University of Technology Sydney and the University of Sydney had had a successful application for a, um, a graduate school in engineering innovation. Uh, I spent uh, some years with that. And then again, you know, I suppose I'd say looked for, looked for corporate opportunities, uh, joined Telstra, but we seem to get continually dragged back into research. So suffice to say, after two years in Telstra, I was found myself as a general manager in, in Telstra Research Laboratories. Um, and probably in terms of my ultimate destination in higher education, that was probably most meaningful, Judith, because it was during that period um, that um, Telstra, through my division, was sponsoring um, some co-op scholarships at the University of New South Wales. Uh, that brought me into contact with Mark Wainwright, who was the Dean of Engineering at the time there. Um, suffice to say, about two years late, well, in the, in the short term, uh, that led to me being invited to give a graduation address at the University of New South Wales. But two years later, I received a call from a headhunter uh, who was seeking to fill a senior position um, on the executive at UNSW, for which my name had been uh, put forward. Um, and Although um, the role really was more in the operational side of the university, because it had a deputy vice chancellor title associated with it, the university was convinced they needed someone with a PhD and someone with, with experience in higher education and research, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the portfolio comprised finance and IT and, and, um, um, and facilities and so forth. 
Um, suffice to say, after a few years in that role at, um, at UNSW, I was, asked, I was asked to take on the role as uh, Dean of the new business school at UNSW, which was to be formed from the merger of the Australian Graduate School of Management with the Faculty of Commerce and Economics. Um, after half a dozen years in that role and, and getting that entity up and running, uh, I moved to the University of Western Australia as Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Education at UWA, thoroughly loved Perth. Um, but once again, within four years, um, Aston University in Birmingham uh, came knocking through a headhunter. Um, that led to me achieving a, a Vice-Chancellor appointment at Aston University, where we spent a very enjoyable five years uh, and led to uh, another, another approach, which of course uh, led to my appointment um, just over two years ago at RMIT. So it's been, as you said, Judith, a, um, an unplanned uh, international um, experience. Um, one that I feel very fortunate and grateful to have had the opportunity to, to undertake. Um, and it's, you know, to be quite frank, has only, you know, each appointment has only built my esteem and regard for the importance that higher education plays in society. Do you miss doing research? Look, I left research very early, Judith. So I, um, you know, suffice to say, um, you know, I went from being an undergraduate, um, I'd had a, a scholarship with the Department of Defence for my last couple of years of my undergraduate degree. As a consequence, they placed me in the Defence Science and Technology Organisation, so DSG, what's now called DSTG, uh, for my period between graduating from Sydney and commencing at Oxford. So in some sense, I was immersed in a research environment there. Uh, I then was a full-time researcher, of course, as a, as a, post, as a um, postgraduate research student at Oxford. You know, I was then a researcher in my first appointments with Phillips, but um, towards the end of that time, that already, I suppose I'd say, sought to appoint me to a, a leadership role and had uh, sponsored me to do a master's degree in management uh, in the US. Um, and although, in some sense, although I've continually come back to research, um, it's been in management rather than uh, laboratory positions. Uh, so my roles in, in Telstra Research Labs, my, my roles um, in the universities in which I've been accommodated when, where there have been senior academic roles, clearly research is part of the, the portfolio, um, but my, my active involvement in research is um, a couple of decades now out of date, Judith. So, and it's one of those things I think, um, you know, I, to the extent that I thought about, well, you know, you make this change from research, which is a very enjoyable pursuit um, to management, then why would you choose to do that? Um, in my case, it was probably a sense that the, the opportunity to have, you know, if I was an outstanding researcher and there's no guarantee I would have been, um, you know, I could have been, you know, equal to the, you know, effectiveness of another researcher or even, you know, even some multiple of that. Um, I suppose I'd say I've had positions where I'd like to think I've been able to uh, have greater impact on the research performance of organisations because I've had, you know, hundred or many hundreds of researchers uh, to whom I've been able to provide, I'd like to think, uh, good, you know, leadership and support uh, for them to be most effective in their roles. Thank you for that. It's um, been quite a journey. Show me your object. 
Now, my object, I'm going to try and show it to you on the screen, um, but it's actually an image. And if you can't see it, uh, Judith, then I'm happy to share you with the image. But, but the image that I'm trying to show now, I'm going to get this right here. So you're going to see that roughly. Yes. What that is an image of is Marvel Stadium. Uh, which is where RMIT holds its graduations. And the setup that you would have been only probably not able to see in fine resolution on your screen is graduation day for RMIT at Marvel Stadium, where we have tens of thousands of students graduating. We have a student population of uh, over 90,000 students. So graduation, because we do it as one big day, one big event, um, it's a massive activity. But the reason I wanted to show it wasn't just about the scale. It's about the, you know, in some sense, this is my motivation for the role that I play, mm -hmm. which is the, the tens of thousands of people who come through this university. This is the culmination of that in terms of the, the celebration and recognition of that achievement. It's a day which is comprised of many, many very satisfied students and parents uh, who are, albeit only achieving their degree as a stepping stone to then the job and career and life that they are going to pursue subsequently. Um, but you know, I, you know, for me, uh, being in education, uh, that culmination, that 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 success of why we're here and what we are here to do. Uh, which is to make sure that students have wonderful educational opportunities, that they have great experiences, that they graduate with a level of satisfaction and pride, and that they go on to pursue their next their next step. And the, we do this at great scale. And you know, I you know, I think there's always a sense that you know we're not a we're not a better university because we're bigger, but the fact that we can give this opportunity and this experience to thousands of students. Um, and make that transformative impact on their lives and their future lives and careers. Um, it, to be honest, is what you know is the, the probably the biggest thing that gets me out of bed each day. And they are joyous occasions, aren't they? Yep. Oh, look, it's it's a and look, you know, RMIT runs this almost as a pop concert. The the whole graduation event. It's a it's a big mass uh, mass activity. And of course, with that number of students, that you know, we can we can have big acts and you know other things that are part of the show but it is um ultimately it's incredibly joyous day and it as i said the uh you know the local students the international students the parents the family that you know the way everybody comes together uh and the the individual and collective pride um as i said it's a it's a it's a, an annual great dose of re-inspiration for, you know, the, the, at the end of the year for us to say, well, look, this, you know, this is what we've achieved and we will do it again, all again next year. You've got a, a, a different experience from many vice chancellors mm -hmm. having been a vice chancellor in the UK and in Australia. Mm -hmm. Each context has different challenges. Each context has different priorities. Mm -hmm. But what, what's your, you know, your reflection um, times at, at Aston, mm. now at RMIT, mm. what do you think are the major challenges for higher education? Look, I think, interestingly, Aston and RMIT are both similar in, in a key dimension, which is that they both have their antecedents in, you know, being a technical education college, effectively. Um, RMIT was the working man's college in in Melbourne established in the 1880s, um, you know, became, of course, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, became a university 
in the you know in the 1990s. Right? Uh, Aston has a similar background. Was founded. Um, its you know pre precedent organisation was established in the 1880s in Birmingham, very much you know height of the Industrial Revolution uh, in Birmingham. Became a university, recognised as a university in the UK in the 1960s, um, but you know very much. Um, focused on what I'll call technical disciplines like engineering, you know, applied disciplines like business, um, allied health and so forth. So that in some sense, both institutions quite similar in terms of their history and their disciplinary focus. So both would be seen as very practical, pragmatic, applied universities, probably a research focus more on, on applied disciplines rather than pure disciplines. Um, and very strong focus on student employability and external engagement with business and government to create workforce solutions and so forth. Um, Aston is um, only average or slightly smaller than average size in for a UK institution, about 18,000 students. Um, UK institutions are on average smaller than Australian institutions. RMIT is large by any measure with over 90,000 students. So, so very similar institutions in one way, very different in terms of the scale of RMIT. Um, both are, you know, I think a lot of the issues in the UK and Australia, particularly in terms of how politicians are dealing with universities at the moment, and, you know, and, and that's not a, by any means a positive story, um, but, you know, criticisms of the university sector in both countries, um, you know, being seen to, um, you know, probably characterise universities in several ways, but one way in which uh, is, you know, unhelpfully and I think unfairly uh, seeing universities as acting in their own interests rather than in the community interest. Um, now, I think a very easy narrative from an RMIT point of view, and it was the same at Aston, in the sense that, you um, we are, to be quite frank, a very practical, pragmatic institution. We are very focused on employability for our students. Uh, we certainly don't see uh, RMIT as an ivory tower. We see it as, as a university that exists to work alongside business and government uh, to meet future workforce needs, um, as well as uh, providing um, clear uh, employment paths for students into areas of uh, economic need in terms of professions and so forth. So um, I think, um, you know, there are, you know, I think I think universities, uh, I don't think it's fair probably criticism of any university to say that they're not focused on the needs of the community and society. Um, I think once again, it's probably even easier for a university like RMIT to, to refute that allegation. Um, but nonetheless, um, you, know, the, you know, there are challenges I think for the sectors in both the UK and Australia dealing with uh, a diversity of community expectations and particularly political uh, ambitions and expectations with regard to universities. Um, I'm you know, happy to be in the Australian context. I think we've got many things in our favour at the moment. And we are, you know, I think we've been a very, by as far as, you know, most, most commentators would look and say the Australian sector has been very effective in terms of uh, expanding opportunities for higher education and partly uh, because we've been quite entrepreneurial and quite commercial in terms of pursuing international opportunities 
which have actually expanded rather than contracted our opportunities for domestic students. So you mentioned students. Yep. Let's get back to you. Yep. Your experience as a student. What, what was your experience like as a student at Sydney in engineering? And in science, so you had. Exactly. So look, I, you know, I, mean, I suppose, I mean, interestingly, you know, I, I certainly, you know, I, I didn't come from disadvantaged background at all, Judith. I, you know, had, you know, certainly, you know, had a middle-class upbringing in Sydney um, and um, sort of, by default went to university because you know I did well academically at school. There was never really a consideration that I wouldn't go to university, although neither of my parents had gone to university. You know, it wasn't that they weren't in professions, but my father was a chartered accountant and the pathway to being a chartered accountant in the you know late 40s, early 50s, when he would have been, you know, at university age, you know, that wasn't a university pathway to, to that career. And and, you know, my mother would have been, you know, achieved school results to go to university, but in some sense that wasn't the expectation of, you know, someone in her position at that time. Um, so, you know, although I was first generation in my family to go to university, it was just a given that I'd go to university. But having said that, I, you know, really didn't have much of an idea of what engineering was uh, when I went to and, and chose to enrol in, in engineering. I was advised by um, usually people who were friends of my parents that, you know, clearly you know, I was, you know, had, you know, had demonstrated school great uh, aptitude in maths and physical sciences. And clearly uh, it would have been, um, you know, unclear to my parents as to what one would achieve by doing a science degree relative to an engineering degree, which would obviously lead to me being in a, you know, in a profession that was, you know, in some sense evidenced by their friends. Now, um, you know, I think that's interesting. I mean, I, you know, obviously, being now of the sector, um, you know, I'm probably less um, of a view that, you know, that, you know, pursuing a more generalist degree like a science degree or an arts degree doesn't actually lead to great employment outcomes. That's certainly, you know, proven, you know, proven to be the case that, that many people undertake those degrees and have fantastic lives and careers. Um, but I'm also conscious at the same time when we're dealing with first, you know, in some sense, first in family to come to university, um, you know, the same, I suppose I'd say anxieties that my parents had way back in the early 1980s still exist in the sense that, you know, if this is the first child from a family that's going to university, they're, they're very keen to join up the dots and see if I study this, I, you know, I, I, I graduate to this profession and this career and, you know, it, you know, if I want to become a chartered accountant, then, you know, that would be a reason to study commerce, for instance. Um, so um, my experience at University Judith, I, I thoroughly enjoyed university. For me, it was, uh, although I was a commuter student, which of course is the norm in the Australian you know, model, um, and I had a much longer commute to university than I had to school. So I was probably traveling an hour each way to go to university. I was thoroughly engaged in student life. I, you know, went to the University of Sydney. I played rugby for the University of Sydney, which was a pretty big commitment in terms of, you know, every Tuesday night and Thursday night and, you know, most of Saturday during at least half the year. Um, but in some sense, for me, it was a way in which I was immersed in, you know, in the life of, you know, as life as a student, which really was in comprised studying some sport. I was involved in the management committee of the sports union and so forth. So, you know, for me, that was, a bit of a continuation from school where, you know, at school I'd turned up, I'd, you know, been involved in sport, I'd, I'd you know, done well academically and, and so forth. And 
Um, yeah, look, I must have been in retrospect quite an organized student because I was taking on quite a significant extracurricular load, um, but no different from any students today who'd be spending equivalent hours working in a part-time job to, to earn you know, support for themselves and so forth. So um, yeah, look, I, I you know, very much enjoyed my, my undergraduate days, um, but you know, all, all good things come to an end. And you uh, had the extracurricular activities at the Manning Bar? Well, look, I mean, once again, because I was doing engineering and to be honest, you know, my contact hours would have been, you know, I probably had maybe an afternoon or maybe two afternoons off, but, you know, I certainly in, on campus five days a week. Um, you know, we were, you know, very social with our friends on campus. You know, we got together for lunch, we got together for, you know, in, in some sense it was just, you know, we were almost attending office hours at university with, you know, the, I suppose I'd say the subject load that a program like engineering carried. Um, but the consequence of that is, you know, and, and you know, uh, I suppose it's one of the regrets I probably have for many students today, which is because their contact hours are in many cases much fewer. Uh, they probably don't have that regular in some sense that their, their principal community being an on-campus community. Uh, which it certainly was for me and my friends. We, you know, we were there for lunch and we were even occasionally there for dinner. Um, and that was just part of our, you know, that was where we spent our time. And your UK experience with um, the DPhil? Well, look, it was a bit similar because I, you know, continued my, you know, not only my studies, but also my sporting involvement in the UK. So, uh, look, I think the big difference for me was, you know, now I was a residential student. Um, so, you know, attending Oxford University, obviously the, the college tradition there is, is fundamental to the, the Oxford experience, um, that sense that you're in a, a smaller community, uh, it's, a, it's a mixed community, both, you know, very international, particularly in the middle common room, because, um, you know, whilst the undergraduate population at, at Oxford would be primarily from the UK at the, you know, in people who are doing um, graduate degrees, uh, you know, a very international cohort. So, you know, mixing with people from around the world, uh, obviously very, um, you know, it's, it's one of the world's great universities, so very selective in terms of the calibre of people there. Uh, you know, you are rubbing shoulders with people who, are, you know, um, have intellectual abilities beyond what you would normally experience, you know, in a, in a much larger university in the Australian setting. But nonetheless, just a... You know, one of those once in a lifetime opportunities, you know, very privileged and fortunate to have that opportunity, but also quite formative in terms of, you know, I, I think that, you know, I sort of said my regrets about the fact that, you know, students have a less, I think, fulsome student life on average than they had a generation ago. But of course, when I went to University of Judith in the early 1980s, you know, only, you know, between 10 and 15% of the Australian population of school leavers would have been going to university. So it was a more select cohort. And, you know, whilst, um, you know, the environment has changed, the, the much higher level of participation and opportunity that exists is a very strong positive and I think a, a strong counterbalance to that. So getting the focus onto you as an educator, yep. um, what's, what's, what are, has been formative for you in terms of how you have both taught, designed, and thought about um, curriculum, but also student experience? Yeah. 
Look, I'm, um, you know, I mean, I, I suppose there are several experiences that I've had along the way, but I think that the, you know, what's evolved for me very much is the sense that, you know, when I went to university and, you know, this is not what I'm certainly seeking to replace, um, you know, everything was on campus, everything was in the classroom. Um, you know, there was a mixture of laboratories and, and lectures and tutorials, but nonetheless, the, the only mode of delivery was, was in person. Um, I think we've moved very much to a, a, you know, a hybrid or multi-mode form of delivery, which I actually think, if properly designed and properly implemented, actually represents a superior opportunity, superior experience for students. You know, and that is on the basis that, you know, I do believe that, that you know, appropriately developed online materials, um, you know, are a natural complement to the interactive, experiential, hands-on activities that we want students to undertake on campus. Um, but I'm, you know, and I suppose it's a way of saying, Judith, that I'm not convinced that the best way to impart knowledge is to have one person standing up the front of a classroom in front of 200 students going through a set presentation for an hour, um, that that's, to be quite frank, ever been the most effective way of, of knowledge transmission. Um, and I actually think much of the content piece of delivery can be well delivered, can be better delivered online with well and appropriately developed um, online materials. I don't think there's any substitute for the interactive elements on, on campus. I do think it's important for you know, us to continue to value uh, the laboratories, the clinics, the tutorials, the, the, the social and interactive and experiential activities, which I think need to provide an important complement uh, to the knowledge transition, transmission elements. Um, but the third bit, which I think is coming to the fore as well, um, is, is workplace integrated learning. And I actually think the ultimate design at the moment, based on current methods that we've got, you know, is the right mix between online content, uh, on-campus interactive experiences and, and laboratories and the like, and work integrated learning in the workplace where students actually get to apply the knowledge that they're receiving instruction on, on real problems. Uh, and to be honest, addressing some of the other issues that I think we need to come to to terms with in terms of how do we uh, provide other models for participation in higher education where students are required to, to earn while they learn. So what you're also speaking about is some sort of major challenges facing higher education, both in terms of student experience, the appropriateness of what they learn, mm. and then the application of that. Yep. What, do you want to elaborate on some of those things as they relate to your university, which is my experience of having done a project there for the government a number of years ago on work integrated learning. You are well ahead of the pack. Sure. So let me have a go, Judith. If I, I mean, and I'll make a comment with regard to, you know, one of the other things, of course, about RMIT is we're a dual sector university. So some of the things I refer to, you know, I think it's fair to say that, you know, historically there's been quite a strong divide between vocational education and higher education, where you know, I think it's fair to say vocational education has probably been identified as primarily concerned with skills um, and higher education is primarily concerned with knowledge. And I personally think that's a false distinction, but I think that's, you know, that's many of ways people think about the two sectors would be, you know, TAFE does, does skills development, higher education develops knowledge. I strongly contend that both higher education and further education at the moment need to deliver both skills and knowledge. Now, the skills that are developed 
uh, in higher education maybe are more uh, of the uh, interactive and team working and leadership and analysis. You know, they're skills um, that are developed in the context of a particular knowledge set, you know, a particular curriculum. Um, but they're actually the bit which is more resilient because if we look at a field, you know, in the in the sciences uh, or in or in engineering and so forth, um, the shelf life of much of the knowledge that we teach is is short and decreasing, uh, and yet the skills and attributes that we need to develop in our learners, including of course a a capability for lifelong learning, um, are the things that are really important and really resilient. Um, so um, I think the interesting thing when we think about how we develop curriculum and how we develop skills um, and how we develop attributes of graduates, um, it needs to be a recognition that, you know, almost all of these things will be learned in the context of a particular knowledge set, right? So, you know, if you're learning you know, civil engineering, then, you know, there are some fundamentals you need to understand about how concrete structures and all these things work. Um, but at the end of the day, they're less important. In some sense, they're, they're less important than the other skills and attributes which are associated with analysis and interpersonal communications and leadership and so forth, which will be applied throughout the duration of a graduate's career, uh, whilst the knowledge set will probably change. And the knowledge set to, to be quite, you know, in many cases will move from probably a more technical knowledge set to a more managerial knowledge set as their responsibilities become you know, more senior in organisation and working with people and through people and, and supporting people to be effective in their own roles. So I don't know whether that's helpful, Judith, but my, mm -hmm. my sense is I, you know, I do think the, I think what we are anticipating being an outcome of the accord, and obviously we're going to know much more about that in a couple of weeks' time, um, you know, there will be a chapter which talks about the interface between higher education and vocational education. I think uh, the fact that there's been reference to, you know, potentially a tertiary education commission being an outcome of this process uh, with tertiary education being the descriptor, descriptor rather than higher education would indicate that, you know, we may be moving towards a system which uh, values more equally uh, vocational education and higher education, but also recognise that the skills remit uh, needs to apply across uh, all areas of education. This time last year, the uh, the world was going to fall in because of ChatGPT and AI. Mm. Um, this year, we're actually starting to think of the opportunities of um, AI. Mm. So what opportunities do you see for higher education and how, how do you think universities will need to manage mm. both the opportunities and some of the pitfalls? Look, I, it is, clearly it is one of the hot areas for us. And I have a very strong view, Judith, that RMIT as a technology university, um, you know, needs to embrace AI, uh, needs to embrace AI in terms of our curriculum, in terms of our methods of instruction, in terms of the way that we run the university, um, because it will be prevalent uh, in all walks of life, uh, in professional life, in in you know, our lives within the community, uh, it's already emerging and it's not going to go away and you can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? So, so our role as educators uh, needs to be to embrace the new technology, but to, in doing so, uh, to educate students and all other stakeholders 
with regard to its limitations, its risks, um, its, its social and ethical um, considerations. Um, as I said, it's, it's not that we can wish it away, uh, but we need to make sure that we have students who are learning how to use AI because that will be the expectation in the workplace. Um, you know, I've got, you know, one of my colleagues has been saying for this from the start that, you know, individuals aren't going to lose their jobs to AI. They're going to lose their jobs to people who are more adept at using AI than they are, right? And that's part of the, you know, you know, we can't, you know, we're not going to, you know, to be quite frank, we shouldn't wish to resist this technology, um, but we nonetheless need to work out how to responsibly use it and how to educate uh, students with regard to its use and limitations, which means my my view is they very much need to be, you know, we need to be assume, we need to be assuming that students are using this technology today. Um, now that obviously the you know the biggest concern we had as universities is to say, well, what does that mean for assessments? Uh, how do we know what you know what is an individual's developed versus what's been developed by ChatGPT? Um, you know, are Previous technologies like Turnitin, of course, rely on the fact that there is an established database of previously submitted material against which you know, plagiarism can be tested. You know, if this is this is generative AI, in some sense, it's generating itself. It's not necessarily existing already in a database. Um, so, you know, we need to understand what does that mean for assessment? Uh, how can we construct authentic assessments that? Uh, operate in an environment where AI is in frequent use. Um, you know, this is an example and, it, you know, it's not, you know, it, it's not something that, you know, that I've implemented, but, you know, I was given an example by, you know, someone who was setting an assessment and the way they were setting the assessment was to say, here's the question. You know, my assumption is you're going to use ChatGPT to get the first draft of this. And what I want to see is the markups on how you have given you know, in some sense, uh, made improvements on the, you know, the outcome of ChatGPT. So at least that they that means they're able to, you know, take this as a as a first draft, apply their knowledge and perspective to understand where the shortcomings of this approach might be, and to understand that the role that they're likely to be playing if if they're working in a lawyer's office, if they're working in some other area, they will probably be a template which is provided for them in the first instance by some form of artificial intelligence. Their value add needs to be how do they provide critical comment on that and suggestions for improvement, because that's what they'll be required to do in the workplace. So Judith, my, my, you know, my ultimate position is, you know, we have a responsibility as a sector and certainly as a technology university um, to lean into this technology, but lean into it in a way which uh, seeks to understand and influence its development, but certainly uh, make sure that people who are using it uh, understand uh, the consequences of that. I've got two more questions. That's right. If you could change one thing for students now, mm. Excellent question. Um, I think I suppose the thing that I, um, you know, I'd like to see more students having the opportunity to get more involved in life at university beyond just the instrumental um, 
you know, attending lectures, you know, attending assessments, doing the minimal amount of contact. And look, I do understand and appreciate, you know, the pressures that young people are under in terms of, of you know, many, many have got to support themselves, you know, they need to earn money to do so, things that didn't exist, you know, when, you know, when I was a student, you know, no one had a mobile phone, didn't have to worry about paying for a mobile phone plan. You know, these are things that aren't negotiable for students these days. So, you know, the, the, you know life has become more complicated. Um, the consequence of that is, um, you know, the engagement of many students with higher education is, um, you know, to achieve the specific qualification that they're there to achieve. But I, my sense is, Judith, you know, the greatest thing that you and I probably appreciate from our time at university it wasn't just the content we learned, it was all the, all the accreditation we received, it was the friendships we made and the experiences that we got from interacting with other people, you know, at a you know, meaningful level. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're just turning up to a lecture and to a class and then you're going home straight afterwards, you, you know, students aren't getting that social development and social interaction. And particularly coming off the back of a, of a global pandemic, where students were isolated, um, you know, I do worry that we aren't, you know, we're not helping ourselves as a society in the longer terms, in terms of, you know, mental health issues, in terms of providing so students with that, that social development and that those support structures of friends and, and colleagues and so forth. Now, um, you know, why are we where we are? Well, we are where we are because life has intruded to a large extent and you know the pressures are greater on young people you know how do we take those pressures away how do we give them more time back to actually invest in their own personal development beyond the curriculum at university well that assumes a level of financial sustainability you know which probably means that those who are least well supported um you know aren't under so much pressure in terms of of you know meeting their you know subsistence needs you know, and I think the, you know, whilst there's always concerns about, you know, university funding, I'm actually an advocate and supporter for the income contingent loan scheme that we have for student tuition. Uh, the issue is much more in terms of students meeting their daily living costs and giving them the capacity to either fully engage in their studies or engage beyond their studies in the social and extracurricular activities that used to be fundamental to part of student life. So the last question, hmm. what advice would you give to the younger Alec? <laughs> Look, I think, I mean, the younger Alec was very fortunate, I think, in that, you know, it, things tended to work out quite well for him. Um, but having said that, I, you know, when I do get the opportunity to give advice to students, and many of them, of course, think that, you know, clearly the way to find the path to success is to ask someone who they perceive as being successful and, you know, try and follow the same plan. My advice, you know, and based on my experience has been, um, I think at any stage in life, one should have a one should have a plan, one should have a view of where one would like to be in five years time. I, I probably never had a view much longer than five years, um, but you know, certainly a sense of what you're doing and what you're trying to achieve and you know, where that might lead to in terms of your next step. Um, but whilst you should have a plan, that plan should never be so restrictive as to uh, cause you to pass up opportunities that are unanticipated and, and are serendipitous. So it is, you know, life's always, um, you know, about planning for what you can see and what you perceive might happen. 
Um, but certainly my life experience has been that there are many opportunities that come along that you could not have foreseen and you need to make a judgment at the time. And I feel that I've been fortunate in being able to take advantage of those opportunities and not be too locked, so locked into uh, an idea that I'm heading in a particular direction that I couldn't possibly contemplate anything else. So it's a, it's that balance of planning and flexibility. Um, and, and, you know, being, you know, I suppose a comment I've usually made is, you know, nothing, you know, if you, you know, almost a no regrets mentality, which is if there's an opportunity, then, you know, um, if you think you're going to regret, if you don't do it, then, then give it a go. Um, and um, look, I trust that many students will have hopefully wonderful opportunities in the future. Um, and as I said, the, you know, they need to, in some sense, be open and inquisitive uh, to want to actually experience the, you know, the unplanned and the unforeseen. And what a, what a great way to finish our conversation. Alec, thank you for giving me uh, 40 minutes of your time on a, on a Friday morning. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I hope that you've enjoyed the conversation and hopefully we'll bump into each other at Universities Australia the week after next. Good. I hope so. Thanks, Judith. You have been listening to Studiosity's podcast, Reimagining Higher Education, candid conversations within higher education, sharing stories of leadership, change, and best practice in teaching and learning. Visit studiosity.com.